You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey folks, before we get started, just a quick announcement. We have a six-part video series coming out based on my book, How the Bible Actually Works. So go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash Bible video and find out more. We're really hoping to help create resources so that you can get a group of people together, probably virtually still, but take some time with other people and go through this six-part video series, learning about what, what is the Bible, what do we do with it, and how does it work. So, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash Bible video to learn more. Okay, great. And our episode today is finding ourselves in the stories of the Bible, and our guest is Amanda Mbuvi, who is a professor of religion at High Point University in North Carolina. And this was one of these discussions that just makes you think, oh, I don't really even know what the Bible's doing, but now I think I do. It was super fascinating, and it helped me. It's always fun when we have guests on that teach you something new. And not just new facts, but just a whole new way of looking at the Bible. This was one of those. Yeah, it's not about what happened. It's about the forming of community through these stories. That's even its purpose. I thought it was fascinating. So, yeah. hope you enjoyed, folks. When people now read the Bible, especially, I'll, I'll speak for Americans specifically, there's a tendency to have this idea that we are a member of a group, we have an identity that we were born with, and it just is. It's just part of our body. These categories that we have, it's like they were part of creation, and they just are fixed facts about us, onto which everything else in our lives, it layers on top, including relationship with God and God's work in our life. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com, promo code normal people. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Amanda, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So we're we're focusing on a on, on a topic that sounds very specific, but I think it has a lot of broad implications, and it's identity formation in Genesis. And I think we really need to start by having you help us understand what identity formation even means. Sure. That's not the way we usually talk about the Bible. <laughs> no. At least not normal so- people. <laughs> So, when I'm talking about identity formation, um, I'm referring to particular kinds of identity, specifically the way we think about ourselves as a member of a group, and the way we come, and the way that groups come to understand themselves as having a particular character and identity. Okay, so group or like communal identity. Okay, so why is that important? I think it's important because, especially for people living in this culture, because it's such a foundational aspect of our culture that we also don't really think much about how it's operating in terms of how it gives us certain assumptions about ourselves and about the world that we don't even notice, let alone think to ask questions about. And the assumptions that we bring to the table are not assumptions that the biblical text shares. And so, in order to see all the things happening in the Bible, we need to be able to rethink some of the assumptions that we have to be able to allow the text to speak to us in some new and fresh ways. Okay, yeah. I I also think 
you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is a bit of a hot topic over the last few years as the phrase identity politics comes up again and again, uh, sort of in our in our popular vernacular and how we how we talk about things. Is that a similar idea of this, uh, you know, how we think about ourselves as a member of a group, but also how that mem- that group membership solidifies how we think of our, of ourselves? Yes, I, I think it's important to make that connection. I mean, to, to think about that process and kind of how we struggle with it as a society. One other thing I'd want to add, I guess, about identity formation is that I think it's also helpful in a lot of ways to 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 use that as one of the genres present in the biblical text. To think, in other words, what I mean is to think about the biblical text as being designed to create a community. That it's not like when we read um, our kids a fairy tale before they go to sleep and it's like, here's some nice a story to think about, that we sort of go off into the story world and then we come back into our own. But that when we're reading the biblical text, it's telling us something about who we are and that's part of the design and the intention of those texts. And so, to be sensitive to the role that they play in trying to sponsor and inform a community. Okay, that's fascinating. So, can we maybe dive into the Bible a little bit? And, and what are some examples that we, where we see this playing out in Genesis? Sure. So, there's a couple ways of looking at this. So, with Genesis, for example, there are a lot of genealogies. And for a lot of people, that's the sort of yada, yada, yada part of the Bible. It, it just sort of goes on. People kind of don't know what to do with them unless they're trying to kind of do some deep dive and, you know, track all the people or something. But to really think theologically about the role of genealogy and to think about how much Genesis puts family at the center of what it's doing and how it's setting up what it means to be human and what it means to be the people of God. So, I think first in the very structure of the book, in the very way that it uses genealogy as a framing device, that genealogies come up at strategic intervals of the book and give it structure, keeping in mind that when we read Bibles with chapters and verses, those were things that were added later. But these genealogies, that's kind of the internal structure of the book of Genesis beyond what we um, or other people later added to it to make it easier to manage. So, that's kind of at the macro level. Um, In terms of thinking about a specific example of how that works, I think it's helpful to think about Abraham. And for the sake of simplicity, I'm just going to call him Abraham, even though his name changes in the book of Genesis, and that's very important. I just don't want to make it confusing by switching names around, so I'm just going to consistently call him Abraham. But this idea of the very intentional way that God calls him and creates a new community with him. And looking at that in contrast to the way a lot of people interpret the stories about him and about his his family, his immediate descendants, the contrast between those two things. Well, I mean, there's that very interesting, uh, getting maybe to some specifics about Abraham and identity formation and family. One of those famous scenes in the Abraham story is where he's planning on slitting his son's throat. <laughs> so, let's work that into this conversation. Yeah, because I know there's so, there's there's so much substance to what you're saying. Let, let's get into some of the details about the story of Abraham and how that functions as identity formation. And, and just to, to be clear about something, you're saying that the function of these texts is for identity formation. Yes. Right, for the ancient Israelites and also potentially for others who come after. Yes. Right, that's what they're there for. They're not there for historical curiosities. They're there for this is who you are, this is where your identity is. Yes, I would argue that that's a primary function and that these the other sort of genres and things serve that purpose. Right, okay. And, um, yeah, so, so I mean, Abraham's such an interesting story. Or, or maybe we don't have to go to the Binding of Isaac episode where I'm alluding to, but just, just help, us, help us understand a little bit about how the Abraham story functions in this way as identity formation. Sure. So, when people now read the Bible, especially, I'll, I'll speak for Americans specifically, um, in American culture, but there's a tendency to have this idea that we, were, we are a member of a group, we have an identity that we were born with, and it just is. It's just part of our body, and these categories that we have, it's like they were part of creation, and they just are fixed facts about us, onto which everything else in our lives, it layers on top, including what um, relationship with God and God's work in our lives also layers on top. But Genesis really kind of messes with that, 
because it doesn't even begin with Israel. If we're looking at this as the beginning of Israel's story, it doesn't even begin with Israel. We get 11 chapters before we even get the call of Abraham, who is the first, you know, kind of the first um, beginnings of Israel. And by the end of the book, we still don't have a full-fledged people, and they're still not in the promised land. Mm -hmm. So, if we look at the things that we think are really important to self-definition, Genesis almost systematically messes with that by keeping those things away, by not providing that information. When we do get the call of Abraham at the beginning of, and that's a reference to Genesis 12, 1-3, when that does happen, the first things that God tells Abraham to do are to leave everything that would have defined him, to leave his land, to leave his father's household. And it doesn't even specify the destination. It just says, go to the land that I'll show you. Yes. So, it doesn't even name what that place is going to be. So, in that way, I think what Genesis is doing is it's really emphasizing that Abraham's identity is going to come from his relationship with God. It's not a freestanding thing, but it's something that emerges, that it's in process, um, that it's that it's dependent on God's work in his life. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. His identity comes from the God of Israel, which will eventually become Israel, Yahweh, right? And it just, I, I'm tying that in my mind to the fact that he's Babylonian. <laughs> you know, right? So, it's, so, it really is his identity as, you know, the father of Israel, the first, you know, the, the, the one from whom all Israel will come. His identity is actually formed solely in the text on God's behest, taking him from a, 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 a people that the Israelites are not going to get along with later, the Babylonians. That's where it starts. And, and as I'm, I'm sure you're familiar, you know, Jewish commentators throughout history have said, what did he do to deserve this? <laughs> like, what was he called for? But it's interesting, you know, he's Nothing, <laughs> you know. So it's it's as if his, his entire identity. Maybe you're, this is where you're going. His entire identity is something that is shaped by God. Yes. Okay, that's pretty cool. That's a way of reading the Abraham story that I hadn't thought about. Too. Okay, that's pretty good. Yeah. All right. I can't help but think about the disconnect, and maybe you can speak to this. That what you said is is ringing in my head. Identity formation is uh, as a genre whereby a lot of these texts were designed to create a community. And I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around that as an individualistic uh, American. So, it, it, in my mind, is that a, a difficult bridge? Uh, I mean, I would assume it's a difficult bridge for people who grew up like me in kind of an individualistic uh, situation to hear that the design of the Bible was actually to create community, uh, not to be the me and Jesus Lone Ranger way of reading a text. Would that be a fair way of saying that? Yes, yes, I think it would. I think, so some things that can help are to notice some features of um, identity that are tendencies that we have from our culture that aren't helpful. So now when we think about genealogy, we think about it like ge um, genealogy is DNA, it's the truth of who you are, you are, you know, 13.9% whatever, and that's it. Um, that is not how the Bible is using genealogy, not just because they didn't have DNA testing, but it's not about biology. It's about understanding um, one's place in the world. So, if we think about it from the standpoint of cultures and other places and in other times where that's played a more important role. So, in my husband's culture, um, in Kenya, for example, you can't even greet somebody um, in, in his family's village until you know how they're related to you. The very way you say hello reflects your relationship to that person. Um, and it's much more a central part of life in a way that for most Americans, it isn't um, present in our daily lives. Um, so much so, and I'm sorry that I don't know the, the culture that this story, um, another culture that this story comes from, but there was um, an anthropologist studying a culture and there was a dispute over two names in a genealogy. Are these two names a man and his wife? Are they two different people? Or are they two names for the same person? And they couldn't figure it out. And the reason it mattered is it had to do with the logistics of some people getting married. It wasn't an incest situation, but just the logistics of kind of how that needed to go. And what they ended up doing was deciding the best outcome for the couple getting married. And on that basis, corrected the genealogy, and that became the definitive answer in the genealogy. So, it wasn't trying to get at to some sense of who are they really, it was trying to get a sense of how is this genealogy serving as a map of our community, 
um, and of our relationship and our responsibilities to each other. And just as the community changes and evolves, even genealogy can change and evolve. It's not a static fixed thing, but it's something that gets re-expressed and re-articulated with little adjustments so that it can continue to do that role of describing people. Something that's a little more relatable for people in, for more people in an American context is thinking about it in terms of a family. And this is actually how I got into bringing this perspective to the biblical text, but just studying family storytelling, just in contemporary American families and looking at how people tell a story about what it means to be the Johnsons or whatever the, the name of the family is, how families have a particular sense of a, a family character and personality that they share and the ways that people pass that on. So a family story doesn't just mean it's something with a full narrative structure, you know, a plot and a beginning and a middle and the end, but it's the things that families tell their members that pass on who they are and what's important to them, what they value in the world, the kinds of decisions they make, the kind of qualities they celebrate, and things like that. And that that process of family storytelling is actually where family comes from. So it's not that family is sort of a fact in your blood, sort of a truth waiting to out, but that family is something that that the members of a family actively create in large part by passing on these stories and bits of information and things like that. So, I mean, there is, I, I like to use the word creativity there. Um, there's a flexibility in the storytelling, I guess, to serve the needs of the community. And, you know, where my mind goes, and I'm sure yours does too, that really renders the question of like history and what happened as well at least not of primary importance in these texts would you would you agree with that yes that's a whole modern thing there amanda you know the whole <laughs> modern right? so okay yeah but i mean you're making a you're making a point cuz maybe you know the I, I getting into the whole like the event behind the text kind of thing which is such a complicated and, and almost hopeless thing to get into but the the text is not I, I don't want to overstate, but I, I'm trying to articulate this. The text is not designed to help you get to that level, to the event level. Right, because the sort of factual angle is less important than kind of the version of history that people live with and what the story is supposed to mean to the family. Okay. So, an example from um, one of my favorite books on family storytelling, the, the author of the book, as part of her process, talked to a lot of people about their family stories. And one, people, one woman told her this story about a courtship, this kind of very slow, drawn-out courtship process of um, some of her ancestors. And so, the author thought, wow, this story has a lot of, you know, it's exciting, it's got a lot of sexual tension. And the woman was like, no, 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 no you don't know my family. Like, that is not what this story is about. This story is about being very deliberate and be making very careful choices and all these things. And so, the author's interpretation of the story, it's not that it was illegitimate, but it didn't really capture what that story meant to the family that told it. And that was more important than sort of what a security camera would have picked up um, watching those two relatives. I think that's why I keep coming back to the first thing you said around this the text being designed to create a community because most modern readers of the Bible expect the Bible to do something else. It's, they don't go to the text in order to foster or create or cultivate a community. They go to it for either kind of personal edification or what really happened. Like, th I have to see this for what really happened. And I think there's some beauty to rediscover in that ancient way of saying, maybe there's some really valuable insight more into how does this give us the fuel for creating a community. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think that's a really robust and valuable question. It feels a little less sterile than the what really happened here. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate that our society is so obsessed with what I call security camera truth, as though that's the only kind of meaningful, valid, or the most important truth all the time, and I really don't think it is. But yeah, I mean, even if we think about the act of reading now, if we, if we say to an American now, go read something, you think about, you know, curling up in a corner and opening a book. But in the ancient world, you know, that these texts come from, reading meant to read out loud. Reading was something done in a community. It wasn't something people sort of did one-on-one. -on -one. It, it was very much a group act, even from 
just to engage the text at all, let alone think about its implications. Mm-hmm. You know, back to genealogies, which is the part that people skip, you know, the begats. But, you know, in, in the you mentioned the opening chapters of Genesis. There are, what, like four actually separate genealogies in those 11 chapters. And... I don't. I mean, I don't know if this is a, a, a helpful question to ask for everyone listening. I hope so. But there are different types of genealogies. There are, are linear and segmented. I guess the, the, that's the language I'm used to hearing for these genealogies. Mm-hmm. Do they do they function differently in in terms of like this identity formation? I mean, like why have why have parallel genealogies that one is just like so-and-so begat so-and-so and other genealogies that take into account brothers and wives and things like that. Sure. So, linear genealogy, where it's just one name per generation, the purpose of those is usually to connect the last person to the first person. Okay. It's usually to establish that relationship. A segmented genealogy where it has, where it lists multiple offspring, usually sons, but you know, where it lists multiple people in each generation is more of a map of a community and it's even... I think in some ways we can think of it as an ancient version of international relations, kind of political mapping, trying to describe uh. the, the the sort of historically and in present terms, the relationships and alliances of the world that people live in. And I think part of where people go wrong with the genealogies now is that they expect them to be precise. Yes. They expect it to be sort of factual and true. And if there's multiple genealogies that contradict each other, which does happen in Genesis, that I think the takeaway from that is just to remind us that it's it's not trying to be factual and precise. Right. That each of those genealogies is serving a purpose as it is, and it, for the sake of saying both of those things, it's per- they're perfectly willing to tolerate the contradiction. That that's less important than making making the point that each genealogy contributes. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning. Residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week, and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital, and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways, and that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy, and I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. And I've, uh, just to jump on that one point there, Amanda, I've, I've heard many times in my life people assuming that, well, you know, the Bible can sort of mess with history a little bit here and there, but the genealogies, that's just a list of names. That This has to be right. This has to be accurate. 
And, you know, the language that I'm used to using is just the theological import of the genealogies, which isn't really fixated on, you know, the security camera thing that you're talking about. But you're adding really another dimension here. It's, it's a, it, they look the way they do because of community identity formation, and they're there for that kind of a purpose. I just think that relieves the tension, doesn't it, Jared, from having to feel like, oh, gosh, some of these names. How can these two genealogies be different? That just isn't possible. But they're not. So there they are. Yeah. I mean, I have a question. I want to go back to the beginning foundation because we started with this idea that it's designed to create a community. This is about identity formation. But I was curious. I was thinking I, I was thinking of some of our listeners who might say, well, she's just saying this. It's sort of kind of without a lot of evidence or proof. So, in terms of Genesis, how do we get this idea that this is what Genesis is trying to do, rather than, say, any number of other purposes we could put to it? So, what do you find in the text that led you to this conclusion that, hey, maybe this is what the purpose of this text is, is about? Hmm, that's a great question. I think, well, I think it comes from a couple different directions. I mean, I think the first sort of thing to look at is, why are we reading Genesis in the first place? There's a lot of stuff that came out of the ancient world. Why are we reading Genesis? And why is it that when we read Genesis, we read it as though it has something to do with us, as opposed to just, here's an interesting story. So, I think it's already sort of baked into the way that people approach the Bible, this assumption that Genesis is somehow speaking to what it means to be the people of God. So, I think there's a sense in which it's embedded in the very concept of Scripture and how people read it. In terms of where it's coming from the text itself, I think it's a recurring assumption throughout the biblical text. If you look at how within Genesis, and you see it a lot, especially emerging in Exodus, um, emerging even more strongly, but this idea that these events that happen are going to be repeated and narrated, that they're going to be commemorated in holidays, that it's always concerned with how this is going to go down. There's someone who's observed that in Exodus, they start talking about how the Exodus is going to be commemorated before the people have even left Egypt. They haven't even gotten out yet, and they're having this extended discussion about how they're going to remember how this happened, which, you know, if you're watching this in a movie, it would be a little odd, <laughs> right, to kind of have that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it's, it sort of shows up in those ways. I think if you, I think it's embedded in the concept of genealogy and the prominence of genealogy and this sense that the readers are, con- that the genealogies in the text are in some sense the genealogies of the readers. And there are different ways that, that, that different communities understand that to work, but that the, the reader, it's their genealogy. It's not just somebody else's family, but it's a genealogy that we are somehow connected to. So, I think it comes from a lot of places. I think the kinds of things that are there, this idea of kind of what it means to be Israel is also there just in the placement of Genesis at the start of the canon. This idea that this is somehow foundational and kind of establishing the contours of this identity and this relationship. It strikes me too that I think, I I wouldn't know this, I'm not an expert in this, but I would think in studies of ancient cultures, that would be a pervading theme throughout any culture in the ancient world of of preserving, protecting, and promulgating our identity as a people. And that seemed to be, a, even just outside the Bible, a pretty foundational purpose for storytelling when we think of even Greek tragedies and these other uh, pieces of, of art. It's really about that formation of reminding ourselves who we are and, and our place in the order of things here. Yes, and it's really instructive to, contra- to compare Genesis to something like the New Melish, to compare it to a Babylonian creation story, where you have, um, from the very beginning, this idea that Babylon is at the center of the cosmos, that Babylon's God is the dominant God, that you get that kind of identity right from the beginning. It's not as sort of open-ended as Genesis is. It's not as all-encompassing. It doesn't drill down to the specifics as much, which in itself is a statement. It's, it's a statement that's more difficult to read than the Babylonian statement because of the way it's not as in-your-face as the Babylonian ones. But I'm suggesting that people should pay attention to what Genesis is not doing, to what it's holding back. 
in addition to what it is. Yeah. Um, one thing you just said before, too, Amanda, was just it really struck me how the you know command to commemorate the Exodus before it even happens is you know for critical scholarship an indication that well you know this is being edited later on and they're inserting things and of course this isn't happening in real time this is what the editors are doing and sort of leave it at that but i think again to to try to bring uh, draw a circle around this i guess what you're saying is that well yeah exactly <laughs> that is what's happening this is edited for the purpose of communal identity formation that's why these things – it's not enough to say this was edited later on and, and, and sort of fashioned in a certain way. The purpose of it is for identity formation. Yes, and I think it's, it's a tendency of, of moderns, and I'll use modern like a biblical scholar to cover the last 200 years or so. Um, but it, I think it's really funny <laughs> how modern readers kind of say, oh, we just need to correct this text a little bit. You know, it's trying to do this, and it could, you know, we fix it a little bit, it does a little better. But it's, it's not enough to sort of say, is the Bible accurate? We have to sort of ask, accurate at what? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times readers have this assumption about what the Bible's supposed to be doing, and it's actually not that interested in doing that. It's not as interested in those things as we are. Um, it's not as interested in a particular kind of historical accuracy. It's not as obsessed with that as we are. And so, if it's not doing that, then what is it doing? People will look at the genealogy in Genesis 10 um, that people like to call the table of nations. I don't like that term, but that people will look at that genealogy and think, oh, we just need to clean it up a bit and make it, you know, make the categories more rigid. And it's like, well, no, it's it's... Why? It's doing a perfectly good job of what it's trying to do. Why are we trying to say it's doing a bad job of something else we think it should be doing? That touches on a theme we talk about quite a bit here on the podcast, which I I, I think it was C.S. Lewis who used the term chronological snobbery, (laughs) that I see a lot of that in modern scholarship and in churches where it's sort of like, well, we have it right and we have to go fix this because they were just so primitive and look at all these mistakes they made, dumb editors. And I think that's just such a, a blindly arrogant way to approach the text rather than having the humility to say, maybe they were pretty smart and maybe they were just after something different than what we're expecting of this text. And I really appreciate this community creation. You have this uh, phrase, I think it's in your dissertation, where you say the community is uh, created and recreated through the telling and retelling of its foundational stories. And I think that's something we've lost in our in our church communities and faith communities. We've spent so much time running around trying to find how we can be accurate and fit kind of what we're trying to defend ourselves against this uh, modernistic understanding of the world instead of just owning what the text is trying to do and building on that by recreating and retelling those stories in ways that make sense to to our faith and and bolster that so or to our communities I would say so I just think it's a powerful thing to say maybe there's something here that we could recapture rather than just saying, oh, dumb editors, like, yeah. we'll just solve the problems and then we'll get it right. Like, being right isn't the point. Mm-hmm. And I think also the the other side in what you're saying is also that what it means that we are reading these texts that are thousands of years old and that they've been read for, for all this time in all these different places and are still read in a lot of different places and a lot of different communities and a lot of different cultures. And that through sharing these texts, through sharing these scriptures, we are also bound to the other people who are sharing it too. So, there are things that don't make sense in our culture. I like to tell um, students about um, Olaud Aquiano. In his memoir, he describes hearing the book of Leviticus, hearing things from the book of Leviticus, and how much that resonated with his um, with his experience in Africa. And that is not the experience of most people reading the Bible now. Like, oh, now I get it, Leviticus, now all this makes sense. Um, but from his yeah. culture, that was something that kind of, that resonated, that was sort of speaking a language he understood. And so, the things that, that, that one person goes, this is weird, I don't know what to do with this. Someone else says, yes, this is perfectly straightforward and clear. And so, when we think about that community formation, that that community goes beyond our time, and that community goes beyond our culture, and that because of that diversity, it's able to speak through our blind spots that we could never see on our own. Yeah, I mean, something is striking me here, Amanda, that um, I, I think a way of, of maybe describing what we're even talking about here is – uh, when reading the Bible, it's really all about proper genre recognition, 
knowing what kind of literature you're reading. And, you know, as we've said already, the assumptions we make about, well, it's got to be historical, you know, in our sense of the word and imposing categories on it. It's trying to be sensitive to the literature itself to let it define its own categories. And sometimes things that are problems in text, so like contradictory genealogies or things like that, those might actually be clues to us as to the type of literature we're even dealing with. Mm-hmm. Yes, the very fact that they tolerated those contradictions, the very fact that they left them alone, and they didn't feel the need to correct them, that they didn't feel the need to establish a clear timeline shows that they you know that that wasn't an obstacle to them that that wasn't something they felt that they needed to smooth out that they were focused on something else and in fact it's worth keeping mm-hmm. you know, I, I mean it, it's 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 important to keep you know the, the conflicting genealogies within you know a few verses of each other and i just i mean i just find that fascinating and just a very liberating thought because again it's shaking up the bible in a good way. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we're just coming at it. I'm saying we, I mean, you know, a, a lot of our listeners are in the process of sort of deconstructing and, and, and thinking of fresh ways of thinking about the Bible. But I think this is one of those pathways that can be so supportive of people looking looking for different ways to be reading the Bible and just thinking about what it is. You know, and, and, and our assumptions uh, are maybe getting in the way of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was going to ask an, a question, too, about Genesis. Okay, if Genesis is written uh, – this is sort of a two-part kind of question here. If Genesis is written for the purpose of like, community identity formation, do you feel comfortable identifying, like, what that community is that is giving Genesis the shape that it has? Like, I guess I'm asking, like, do, do you have a sense, or is it even important to ask, when that community is existing? Like, who who wrote this stuff and made it look the way that it does? Um, I think I think that's a worthy question. Um, for me, it's been more important to try to deflect attention away from that question, because when it comes to identity, that question has been used to smuggle the um, the modern assumptions about identity back in. So where we have Genesis very specifically not presenting Israel as not yet a people and not yet in its place, a lot of times the the situating it in, in its historical context is then used to say, but this is who they really were. They did have this identity. So even though Genesis doesn't have it, they kind of pull it back in okay. from the history. Yeah. yeah. So for the purposes of this question and for this topic, I think it's sort of important to bracket that question to really force us to reckon with the absence of a fixed established community. Right. So that question actually will get in the way, so to speak, of recognizing the community identifying function of the text. Yes. I think it's really telling that people who write about identity don't usually like to write about Genesis unless they're doing, because it doesn't have the things we think we need to talk about identity. It doesn't have those markers and that people tend to gravitate toward texts with a stronger imperial imprint um, that, you know, that, ref- that show um, something like Daniel or something like that, where it gets closer to the way we operate, and that people sort of avoid something like Genesis that doesn't seem to fit. And I think it's that very not fitting that is so valuable. Mm-hmm. It also makes it more, I, I guess it, 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 really capitalizes on the flexibility of it all for different communities at different times and different places to, I guess, access Genesis and other texts for their own uh, community identifying formative task. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for us, I think, I guess something to sort of balance out the things I've already said um, would be to point out it's it's so I'm not suggesting that if we're trying to think about it, well, what does this mean for us who live in this world where we have these strong ideas about identity and where they're so influential in shaping our society, are we supposed to just act like they're not there? Genesis actually depicts that struggle, which I think is really interesting. So you have God calling Abraham into this new identity, but then it's not fully fleshed out, and then he's interacting with other people. And it's not like when other people see him, they go, oh, I see that you are the beginning of a new thing that God is doing, 
right? They're not going to make sense of him in terms of this new emergent identity. They're going to make sense of him in terms of the categories they already have. So, the word Hebrew, for example, that as a as a um, ethnic term, when people use it in Genesis, it can't really mean the 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 covenant community that God's creating that becomes Israel. Um, it can't be that because other people don't know about that yet. It can it. That Hebrew can become that in later texts, but not yet in Genesis. And so, we, we see Abraham sort of caught between these different kinds of definitions and the way the word Hebrew shows up in Genesis only when it's outsiders describing people in the family of Abraham. It's never a word that they use for themselves. And so, that process between living with um, the structures and expectations of our culture and the people around us while also trying to live into relationship with God and God's emergent work is already there in the biblical text. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life, and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago, and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose, and it's just my throat hurts, and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Just to come at us, I think it's basically saying the same thing that we've said, but coming from a different angle when you know you guys are talking about history and the text there's something about the power of story here that i think is really valuable that that's it seems like ancient people valued storytelling as a tool for community or identity formation which is what kind of what we've been saying but i think what's sticking out to me is this idea of storytelling almost as a craft and as a skill that can be fostered for this for this purpose. And I think I can't help but just make the connection to our world because I think we have we're lacking a lot in in this area. But it's another one of those things that I think points out some blind spots that we have where for me, you know, I tell this story sometimes where when my kids were younger, we'd be reading the Bible and they would ask the question naturally because this is a modern world, did it really happen? And we would say, well, you know, I don't, probably not. It probably wasn't exactly this way. And then my kid would say, oh, so it's just a story. And my wife would interrupt and say, well, not interrupt, but jump on that really quickly and say, no, no, no. Stories are really valuable and they're really important. But it's so funny, at such a young age, they had learned to devalue and downplay 
storytelling. Oh, it's just a story, meaning it's not historically accurate. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's some retraining. So that's why this is exciting to see. There's some retraining we can do in our lives of, around storytelling and seeing that for ancient people all the way up until recent times, this is a really valuable skill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And we've lost it, I guess. I mean, mm-hmm. we're such modern people. Yeah. I can explain things. I'm not a good storyteller. Yeah, I can confirm that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, the nice thing with family stories is that they don't have to be sort of well-crafted, well-toured stories. So, even just little facts, like even little sort of snippets that don't go anywhere. Like if we talk about Methuselah lived to be 969, that's a story. It doesn't have to be something, you know, that has plot movement and a climax and, you know, jokes or something. Can you, maybe could you apply that to Genesis because I think that's helpful too. Are there are there points at Genesis where it's not a narrative? It's not this beginning, middle, and end that maybe has this formative aspect. But there are. I'm trying to get a grasp for what that means. Because when I think of story, I do think of like a narrative arc and an ending. Is it because what's the difference between a story, family stories, let's say in the Bible, and just facts, or you know, not like historical facts, but just statements about? families. Are those the same thing? Um, the difference is how, is, is, is how they're told. Who tells them and how and why that they're told. So, I'm thinking you could go find the census data on your relatives going back as far as you want, if, if you're allowed to access that kind of thing. I don't know. But you can find out, you know, you can gather that information from, say, government sources um, and find out, you know, facts about your family. But that's really different than what your grandparents choose to tell you about their childhood, what they choose to tell you about your parents' childhood, Mm. and why they've chosen to tell you one thing versus another, and what they hope that will mean to you, how they hope that that will shape shape your life. So, the editing and the, the meaning that's already infused by who's telling you is part of that process. Yes. Hmm. So, Amanda, would you say that this function of of Genesis for community identity formation, that extends to other parts of the Bible itself, or maybe all of it? I mean, I can see it in Exodus, but, uh, you know, the story of David, kings, and things like that. The Psalms. Yeah, the Psalms. Ecclesiastes, you know, Job. Are they all part of identity formation, in your opinion? I think so, yes. And I think so from, I guess, from the standpoint of their role in the Bible, in the biblical canon. Um, that that's part of, that's a big part of what a, the biblical canon is doing. Yes, yeah, okay. Right, overall, overall. So, it's sort of like, yes. what is the Bible? You, one way of answering that question, it's a question we ask here a lot, you know, and, and mm-hmm. we're getting different answers. What is the Bible? One answer to that question is, it's a community forming document, identity identity forming document. That's interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Another example to think about is a lot of the biblical laws have something called a motive clause. You know, something like don't abhor the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Something like that. Where it's not, it doesn't just say do this or don't do that, but it gives you this little snippet of why that taps into the narratives, that taps into those things, but it's it's illustrating uh, the role that, um, that story plays in. Yes in informing the ongoing life of the people. We're also sort of dealing with it across a sense of, of loss. So, uh, I like to tell students sometimes, looking at Leviticus, it's easy to look at that and kind of be sort of baffled by it. But I tell them, you know, to kind of, from our vantage point, um, reading about these rituals in Leviticus, it's like if you can imagine some sort of sci-fi future where people don't eat. You know, they put stickers on their arm and that's how they get nutrition. And so, living in that society... You're trying to explain what the holiday of Thanksgiving is based on a turkey recipe. It's going to be mm. totally baffling to people. Like, you're not going to get the larger context of all that just from looking at details of one practice. You're not getting the sort of larger world of meaning and things that's also transmitted alongside it and around it. You know, that the other sort of side of the family storytelling is it assumes a family that's telling the story. It's not... Um, just looking at things in isolation. And as that context shifts, it can be harder to um, to understand those dimensions. Okay. We have a lot of listeners who, this is, this is big new information for how to even think about what the Bible is. It's been a fascinating conversation. So, as we wrap up here, 
What's a maybe some words of wisdom for people who say this really resonates, but how can it change how I approach the Bible? Would you have anything to help them take some next steps as they try to wrestle with what this means in in their you know faith practice? Sure, um, and and we can talk about that from a couple different directions. So from the identity standpoint, I think. I think the the thing to do is to to look at the Bible as informing your identity at the deepest levels, to assume that who you are is a work in progress, and that the Bible mm. can speak to that. Um, that it's not just something that that's set in stone, and the Bible can only kind of lead you in a certain direction. But this idea that that you can be formed as you're reading these texts. Um, from another direction, I think a really practical thing to do is to consider when you have those moments when you're reading and you feel like, well, this is a contradiction, or I don't feel like it's answering my question, to, to ask yourself, you know, that's a good time to kind of take a step back and sort of wonder, well, what kind of questions is this text interested in? Instead of assuming, you know, instead of sort of being stuck on your questions and kind of wondering why the Bible isn't answering them, to kind of use that as a moment to reframe and sort of see, well, what is important to this text? What is it talking about? Um, And to look at it from that point of view. Well, thank you, Amanda. That's wonderful. This has been so informative, and uh, we both just want to thank you for taking the time and talking to us about the Bible, <laughs> you know, and just a, a, just a different angle for, I think, a lot of people that's going to be very, very helpful. So, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, folks, thanks for tuning in. Just a quick reminder, how the Bible actually works. We have a six-part video series, right? Yep. Yeah. That's right. And so you can just go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash Bible video and learn more about that. We hope that it's a time where, again, you can gather together some friends. We talked about in this episode uh, identity formation. These kinds of studies are good for that kind of thing. Get together, have arguments, have conversations about what the Bible is and what we do with it. We also want to give a shout out to our producers group who support us over on Patreon. They are the reason we're able to keep bringing podcasts and other content to you. So big thanks to Aaron Clark, Darlene Sinclair, Brett Davidson, Height Baker, Amanda Oster, Chris Pearson, Sam and Nicole Galambos, Dave Pfeiffer, Christopher Zenner, and Stacey Donaldson. If you would like to help support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support. Thanks as always to our team, executive producer, Megan Kamick, audio engineer, Dave Gerhardt, creative director, Tessa Stoltz, marketing wizard, Reed Lively, transcriber and community champion, Stephanie Spade, and web developer, Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. We would really encourage you to grab some people, not physically. Yeah, don't, I mean, not physically. We're still in. Don't make this, it a legal thing. You know, you know? exactly. <laughs> but maybe a virtual group gathering. We're trying to find a way to help. Uh, God damn it. All right, we got to redo that. Yep, exactly. I think it's fine. Let's just leave that as it is. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, Dave. Bye. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.